Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Good morning, Living Word. Good to see you here. A little bit smaller crowd today. What happened? See, this is what's a little bit, makes me a little bit nervous, you know. I know I, I felt like I was uh, maybe sticking my neck out a little bit last week. And then I come back this week and, you know, we're probably 30, 40 fewer people here. And I was like, but do I chalk that up to the sermon? Do I chalk that up to the weather? I think I'm chalking it up to the weather. We'll see. You know, next week it's supposed to be about 14 degrees colder than it is today. So we'll see. A lot, lot could change between now and then, right? This building's warm, right? Thank you for being here. Those of you who couldn't be here or wouldn't be here, still, thanks for joining us at home or wherever you might be tuning in from. Can't wait to see you. Uh, oh, before I forget, Lisa, uh, Lisa and Lisa, uh, wave at the congregation because uh, we, they still need to hear from you. We want to get children's ministry up and running soon, but we've got to have the people to help. Uh, we need teachers. We need helpers. I don't know who all we need, but please talk to them. We've got, we've, it, we're going to go into rotation. You know, we don't need nearly as many as we've needed in the past for a quarter because we have fewer classrooms and we're not doing Wednesday nights, but we still got to have some people. I know we have the talent. I know we have the personnel in here, but they have to have this thing organized. So let them know that you can help out with that. All right. I'm going to try to get this message out in a timely manner because, uh, as you know, in the, uh, uh, it's somewhere in the list of feasts of Israel. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, we also we have the small group leaders luncheon today right after service. Uh, well, at 11 o'clock anyway is what the, the food schedule to be picked up. And then, of course, I want to get home, make my Super Bowl dip, and get a roaring fire going in the fireplace. Uh, I am going to talk a little bit more about America today, but this is not a political message. It was last week, I admit. It was a little bit political. And uh, by the way, thank you for all the kind words. I received a number of messages uh, from you, from many of you, uh, and all, all, everything I got was positive feedback. So I appreciate the encouragement. And thanks too, I guess, for all of you who didn't like the message but didn't say so. Uh, appreciate your discretion. But let me start with this, and I guess I say it's not a political message. This part, just this first part, might be a little political. Uh, but, but sometimes I still think uh, it's, this is meant seriously to encourage you. And, and I think that uh, there's still a level of uh, maybe feeling a little bit defeated, a little bit exhausted, a little bit frustrated, uh, that in disappointment about how the election turned out for some of you, for many of you. And I get it. I really do. Uh, and part of that frustration, if we accept uh, the election of President Biden as a done deal, and as I made the case last week, I think we should. I think we need to recognize that, pray for him as president, and move on. Um, but what makes that frustrating for a lot of people is that so many people had so much invested in President Trump's reelection. And I'm talking invested in terms of maybe even monetary contributions to a campaign, maybe um, certainly in terms of prayer, conversations, passion, even prophecy, uh, and just looking at the party platforms. And please try to get 
everybody, try to get uh, past everybody's uh, personal faults and issues for a second. It seemed obvious to many that the, that, uh, the, plat- the Republican platform more closely reflected godly values than the Democrat platform. And as I mentioned last week, and by the way, by the way, I uh, got a message from dad. He usually shoots me a message in the afternoon telling me whether he loved or hated my sermon. No, it's always something good. He always finds something good to say about it. But he asked me, did you see Keith Moore's message on this? And I said, no, which one are you talking about? And he told me, uh, and he said, just go to YouTube and type in Keith Moore, God is not a Republican, and it'll take you to it. It's a five, just a five and a half minute clip or a compilation from a message he preached. And I had not seen it, but when I saw it, I felt like I needed to stand up here and tell you I hadn't seen it. Because if you, if you missed last week's message, don't bother. Just go to Keith Moore. Just, just watch this for five and a half minutes. He preached my sermon in five and a half minutes. He hit on just so many things that I said. But anyway, last week and at other times, I have maintained that, that it was a mistake to bind ourselves as Christians. It is a mistake to bind ourselves as Christians too tightly to any individual, any candidate, as if the fate of Christianity is in the balance of an election. But the more we felt that way, then the more disappointing it was. The more invested you were in the election, perhaps the more bankrupt you feel now. And this is not a perfect application, but this is the scripture that came to mind. And you can turn to Second Chronicles chapter 25 if you want. Uh, and this is when uh, Amaziah has just become king and he's preparing to go to war. We'll pick it up in verse 5, 2 Chronicles 25, 5. Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and set over them captains of thousands and captains of hundreds according to their fathers' houses throughout all Judah and Benjamin, and he numbered them from 20 years old and above and found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war who could handle spear and shield. He also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the children of Ephraim. But if you go, be gone, be strong in battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemy, for God has power to help and to overthrow. Hmm. So he's saying this is kind of like a little bit, there's a little bit of a parallel to like with Gideon. You got too many men. You got too many men. But in this case, he had hired Israel who have, they've walked out from underneath God's favor. He's saying, oh, you've got an army here. And if you, if you are called into battle and you go into battle, you go be strong. But God is not going to bless you if you take Israel with you. So send them home. What's the problem? He's already paid them, Right? Then Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? And the man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. So Amaziah discharged the troops that had come to him from Ephraim to go back home. Therefore, their anger was greatly aroused against Judah, and they returned home in great anger. Now, Amaziah had a point, right? I've already paid these guys, and I don't see myself getting a refund. That's going to be a little bit tricky uh, so since I've already hired him, already paid him, how about I at least get my money's worth? Uh, but the man of God had no great plan to get the Israelites to return, uh, the Israelites to return the money. He didn't say, oh, don't worry. Here's what God's going to do. He's going to move on their heart or you're going to, 
uh, maybe uh, you'll fight with them and win it, and then you'll receive the spoil. No, he didn't even have a great speech how he should have said, well, you know, that's your fault. You should have checked with me or checked with the prophet or checked with God before you hired him in the first place. You just learned an expensive lesson, didn't you? No, what did he say? His response is one of the most comforting things I read in Scripture. God's able to give you more than that, much more than that. That's a pretty cool thing. If you, uh, there, there's always, always more profit in every important way in following God, in obeying God, than there is taking things into your own hands. So if you're a little upset that all of your efforts to persuade and otherwise achieve a particular outcome were foiled, don't sweat it. God is able to do much more, even now. All right? Now, here is a more important issue for America. And I'm not talking now about any particular election. We're moving beyond the political. Uh, we as believers, we're talking about national uh, density, national destiny right now. We as believers should be, always should be advocating for laws that, like I mentioned, reflect and represent uh, and respect Christian beliefs and values. But we should also be convinced that this is a good thing for the country, not just for believers. We should be advocating for these things, not just because we want to be a, a, a privileged religion, a privileged class, but because we believe that a country, uh, that a nation with laws that honor God and his values and his stated principles is going to be a blessed country. So, a country that moves away from these principles is uh, in danger, always in danger, of losing God's protection and blessing. And so we pray for godly representation and godly laws so that we can remain under God's blessing. And we want that for America. Uh, our, our concern should not be that things are going to be harder for us, but that things are going to be bad for the country if the country as a whole moves away from God. And we want America to be a beacon of good for the world to look to. And we as Christians want the world to know that, that, that God is the source of that goodness. This, once again, is reflective of God's plan for Israel. When God established Israel, when he raised them up from one man, and then eventually brought them out of Egypt and into the land, to their, the land that he had promised them, uh, he set them, he said, in the midst of nations as an example of the kind of God he is. He wanted them to be in a place where they were surrounded by people who did not know him, who had no covenant with him, so that they could look at Israel and see, ah, there is a nation whose God is the Lord. They've got something we don't have, and that, in that day and age, was clearly seen as, that means their God is better than my God. And this, by the way, just to chase a rabbit just for a second, is one of the most frustrating things you'll see. And you'll see it, by the way, right here in this chapter, if you read the rest of Second Chronicles 25, is that Israel, who had the covenant and experienced God's manifest power in victory after victory after victory, kept turning to the idols of the people that they had defeated. These gods that were no god at all. Anyway, so again, we see America... Uh, I, we want to see America as a similar shining example that as we honor God, God honors us, blesses us, and that this is, this is a beacon to the world. But we see, I think, America as a whole, this culture becoming less and less godly. I don't know about you, but when I read Romans chapter 1, I see the second half of Romans chapter 1 coming to fruition right before our eyes. Now, 
before I move on with this point, let me explain something. Uh, a lot of how we pursue God's will in the earth and, and uh, obey him and do the things we believe he's called us to do depends on what our eschatology is, meaning our view of the last days. How are things going to shake down in the last days? What's going to happen? What's this world going to look like, for example, when Jesus comes back? And I have admitted to you before, eschatology, last day stuff, is not my strong suit. All right? We'll get there. Uh, Because it's all revelation and everything is stuff that we're called to read and learn and preach. And I will. It's not like I know nothing about it. But uh, I can't speak expertly about all the different eschatological views. But I will give you two broad different views. And one is this, that we as Christians are called to pray and work with our preaching, with our giving, with our uh, working in communities, even with, uh, uh, in, in democracies, with passing laws, in such a way that we make this earth more and more and more like the kingdom of God. So that when Jesus comes back, he comes into a kingdom that he has already established through us. He comes into a world that we have transformed by our obedience and ministry. I do not subscribe to that view. I think biblically, it's a lot easier to come to the conclusion that this world is going to get further and further and further away from the ideal of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus steps back into this world, he steps into a mess and fixes it. That's putting it very, very roughly. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, we do, he did teach us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that does, I don't think what he means by that is that all the earth is going to see, is going to do God's will. But just that even in this dark, sinful world, I can do his will just as they do his will in heaven. That God's will can be manifest in my life, in my family, in our church, right? So... Uh, There we go. As we become, so I see this, as we become a less godly society, which I think is where we're going. I don't think, I don't see the world or nations becoming more and more godly. Uh, But as we become a less godly society, some then worry that judgment is coming to America. If America is inevitably going to move further and further from God, how do we escape that conclusion? Whether it's judgment directly from the hand of God or whether we as a culture move on purpose out from underneath his hand of protection and blessing. That's the way it looks. We are are inviting a curse, uh, judgment. So what verse do we lean on in that case? You know as well as I do. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, which says this, you know it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, first of all, I have heard it said uh, that, oh, you can't be speaking that over America because this was God making a specific promise to Israel at a specific time in certain circumstances. And I reject that because I think simply understood, we got to recognize a couple things. We are his people. This is our land. Okay? So, if, uh, if I pray, God will hear from heaven. God will heal the land, right? Kind of. Jeff Berkey pointed out yesterday during men's prayer, by the way, men, can't recommend it highly enough. Join us on Saturday mornings when you can. Uh, 
but that's uh, we, sort of a shorthand verse. If you don't have it memorized or you don't, you know, I'm not doing a teaching on the verse. I'm just throwing a general truth out there. That's kind of what I'll say sometimes. Hey, if my people will uh, humble themselves and pray, I'll hear from heaven and heal their land. But as Jeff pointed out, uh, you're skipping a couple of important points. What's it say? Humble themselves and pray. Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We got to do every bit of it, right? And the thing that I have always leaned on this verse about is, this verse doesn't say, if the whole land will turn to me. It says, if my people will humble themselves, pray, do these things, and so we say, what are we doing? We're interceding. We're standing in the gap for the rest of the country. We're his people. This is our promise. We claim it, right? I think it's good. I'm not setting a trap. This is what I still believe. But there's also this. In Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, we read, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. These are three men known for their righteousness. And by the way, Daniel was alive at this time. He was a contemporary. Noah, how righteous was he? It was only him and his family, only he and his family who escaped the judgment of the flood. Job, upright man, the most upright in the land. And he's saying that these three men, their righteousness could not intercede to save the land. So there comes a point, obviously, where a nation is crying out for judgment, where even when God's people humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, will not see their land healed. A couple things, though. It does say they themselves would be saved. Now, you've got to understand when it says they would be saved by their righteousness, that is not contradicting anything about our ability to save ourselves. What's he he's, not, he's not talking about saving their eternal souls. He's talking about escaping a particular moment of judgment on a land that God would be able to protect them, heal them, bless them, prosper them, even as judgment is raining down around them. Can he do the same for us? Do we want to get there? I don't. I mean, I don't, want, I don't want it to come to that. But I'm not afraid that God is going to abandon me to a judgment that I didn't invite. And if you go on, if you go on and read the rest of this chapter, you'll see that he's talking about how God is not even abandoning Judah. Obviously, we know that. He's not abandoning, abandoning Jerusalem, but that he's always going to carry a remnant through all of this. He's not ignoring 
the righteous. Do you remember? Of course you do. When Abraham was bargaining with God about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember? So I said, what if there's 50 people? Are you going to wipe out the whole city? What if there's 50 people? Uh, are you going to wipe them out too? Now, did Abraham specifically say, can't you save the city for the behalf of, on the behalf of 50 people? Did he say that? No. It sounds to me like his prayer was, surely you'll, you wouldn't kill them. Will you do something to save 50 people? Can you destroy the city except for them? But what does God say? I'll spare the whole city on their behalf. Well, what if there's only 40? What if there's only 30? What if there's only, what if there's only 10? Ah, if there's 10 righteous people, I'll spare the whole city. This was what God's heart was. I don't think there was ever a moment when God was going to kill Lot and his family just because they lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. I think he always had a plan to get the righteous people out of there. He's looking for an excuse to save the city. This is still God's heart. But all that to say, the point we're looking at here is God will always preserve the righteous, even if judgment comes. He will remain faithful to us. Now, again, this is, uh, I'm not saying we are there. But if we continue to move from God as a nation, I can't help but think that that's where we're heading. And we can only stall it. We can't prevent it. That is, if my eschatology is correct. All right? But we still have God's protection and God's blessings. I don't know how, but even through persecution, he will be faithful to us. And he's made promises that aren't negated by all of these bad things happening around us. It's a little harder to believe for. But that's when, uh, that's when our, our, our true faith is revealed. There is also, and I won't have you turn there, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's too hard to find a small enough passage to squeeze in here, but the, the, the center of it is Ezekiel 9.4. And I talked about this some time ago. And this is when judgment, this is the vision that Ezekiel had of the destruction of, of uh, the temple and Jerusalem. And uh, remember, he has, a, he has this vision of these uh, armed men. They, they have a weapon. They're, they're sent there to, do, just to kill everybody. This is the, these angelic beings. But there's one who's got a, a, an ink horn. And God says, before the destroyers come in there, you go and you put a mark on the forehead of all those who sigh and cry around the temple. These are the, and and I, that blessed me when I, saw, when I read that when I saw that, when I understood it, because it kind of sets the bar kind of low. Uh, there, it, there are people who are going to be preserved, not because they've done great things or done great faith exploits, but just because they're still sensitive enough to the Spirit of God to be bothered by what's going on in a culture that's turning from God. He said, put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry and don't touch them when you start destroying the city. Now let's move on to this other point, and then I'm going to come back and, try, uh, and tie them all together. All right? The other defense that I have made for the preservation of America is, uh, and, and so have many, uh, is that God has blessed America because America has sent out the most missionaries. By far. Uh, these days, I think, uh, I think you know this, I think I've mentioned it before, South Korea is, is quickly catching up as, uh, as the world leader in uh, sending. But missionaries, as well as millions, probably billions of dollars worth of Christian aid and ministry and teaching materials, America, in short, is 
the greatest exporter of Christian truth in history. I've said this many times. Just the other day, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Dr. Joe Thomas. Some of you know him of Urbana Theological Seminary. And Joe is a professor of Christian history, and he's no cold academic. He's a passionate believer. And when I just mentioned what I just shared with you about the missionaries and Bibles and stuff like that, he said, I want to correct you about that. America has never sent one missionary any, anywhere. The church did that. Very important distinction. Because we are a church. We are part of the church. God's church, God's family. In fact, God's country. And I'm not talking about the United States of America. Hebrews 11. This is after listing the early heroes of the faith. And the author of Hebrews, and that was, who wrote Hebrews? Thank you. Amen. It was Paul. Of course we know it was Paul. <laughs> he writes this in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, once again, I don't think this can be overemphasized. I don't think that patriotism and devoted Christianity are incompatible. I really believe that I can love my country and serve my country correctly in the context of my higher allegiance to the kingdom of God. But there can be no compromise when it comes to that allegiance. Even if America were truly and thoroughly a Christian nation, that wouldn't change. Countries, nations, rise and fall. The kingdom of God is forever. The country of heaven, the heavenly country is forever. And those who cling to, uh, not tightly, those who cling lightly to any earthly identity, whether it's a national identity or racial slash ethnic identity or even blood family. If we cling lightly to those things but we truly identify, fully embrace the identity of being an alien, a stranger, a pilgrim looking for our true home, then we are the people that God is not ashamed of those for whom God has prepared a city, an eternal city. Do you hear me? There is nothing wrong with recognizing certain attributes of our identity. There's nothing wrong with saying, well, I'm a, I'm a quarter German, I'm a quarter English, which I think I am, right? And I'm half I don't know what. Uh, uh, some people are very proud of uh, certain ancestries, all right? And some people very much identify with whole movements just because of these are my people. And some, and we all know God is about family, right? God, God established the family. But what did Jesus say? 
hey, uh, Jesus, your uh, mother and your brothers and sisters are here. Uh, these are my, this is my family right here. Whoa. That's kind of harsh, wasn't it? What else did he say? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword that's going to set family members against each other. That's not his will. It's not God's best. He's simply saying there is going to come into this world a time when families, there are going to be a wedge driven between families because at some point, sometimes, thank God, not in every family, not all the time, but sometimes a family member has to choose. Am I going to choose my family or am I going to choose the truth of Christ? Anything that competes for our allegiance to God has to take the back seat, has to take second place at least. If, and I pray it doesn't happen or that it doesn't happen for a long time, but if America ceases to be a global force for good, it could still be the church's finest hour. Among other things, what would happen? America would stop getting the credit for what Jesus and his church have done we will truly be leaning on the power of God and operating in the power of God because we don't have anything else to operate out of. Meanwhile, though, let's keep praying Second Chronicles 7.14 as if the country's survival depended on our intercession. I believe it does until if there comes a time when it's too late. And then, let us never forget that even if it is too late for any country, that never means that God abandons us. He never abandons his people in that country. God doesn't make promises. He doesn't enter into covenant relationships with nations, except for Israel. Who does he enter into covenant relationships with and, and, peop, uh, uh, and, and, and make promises to? To people. Jesus didn't say, I will never leave nor forsake America. He said, I will never leave or forsake you. I'm not giving up on this country. Please, don't, don't, that's not my message. <laughs> but ultimately, it's not my country. Heaven is. It's yours too. And we need to make sure we're representing our true homeland well. We are ambassadors, official ambassadors. And remember... <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, even when you're not in your home country, it's good to have credentials from your home country, especially if you live in America, right? There are benefits from being in America. I have certain rights, privileges as an American. But the benefits of being a citizen of the kingdom are infinitely greater than those afforded by the U.S. Constitution. It should be our prayer that we don't have to lose those rights as Americans in order to appreciate that or realize that. There is no human government, no matter how rich, powerful, or humane, that can offer you one second of life after you die. God made that promise boldly, openly. And Jesus validated that promise in the most dramatic fashion when he walked out of the grave 2,000 years ago. He said, because I live, you also will live. Stand up with me. Praise and worship team, you can come up here while I ask you guys this. Will you receive, will you, will you pledge allegiance to the God of creation and to his kingdom? And will you receive that gift of eternal life and claim as your true home the eternal kingdom? Have you done this? Listen, 
We can talk, and we're talking about world issues. We're talking about governments. Uh, communism versus capitalism. There's a problem for you. What uh, atheism versus theism. You name a conflict, large or small, a struggle, a war, and you can trace its roots back to the garden because sin is the problem. And no government can solve that problem. No army can defeat it. No force of will can overcome it in your life. So what's the solution? Jesus defeated it. He robbed sin of its power. What's the power of sin? It's death. And he robbed sin of that power by dying that death for me and for you. Did it in our place. If, if we will claim allegiance to him. If we will receive him. You can't just receive him as the guy who took my sin away. You have to receive him as your Lord. No man can serve two masters. But if you receive him as Lord, he becomes your savior. Romans 10.9 says what? If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved forever. Is there anybody in here who needs to make that decision today? Have you tried to be a better person? Try to be a more effective person? Try to be a more successful person? I don't know. You need to be a different person. And only God can give you, literally give you new life. And the life he gives you is eternal life. Does anybody need to make that decision today? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Am I in the presence of a congregation that by simple affirming with the raising of your hand will say, I pledge allegiance to the one true king. My allegiance is to my home country of heaven. And I will do my best as an ambassador of that country to represent him accurately, truthfully, and boldly while honoring the laws and the government of this country. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We've got a world to win. I believe we are. Even if things aren't crashing down, I believe we are stepping in as a church, as a local church, and as the church, I believe we are stepping into our finest hour. I think that God has got some amazing things that he's going to do through us if we will open our eyes to them, if we will speak them out. And we're going to be talking about that in coming weeks, getting back to some faith uh, messages and, and, and what we need to be saying and doing in faith. Uh, but if we will hook up with that, God's going to get it done. We know how the story goes. The question is, what part are we going to get to play in it? And a lot of that depends on us. Here my Lord, send me. What are we doing in the meantime? We are living the gospel. We are preaching the gospel. I'm going to close this out in prayer. I just want, to, want, you to, I want you to remember that we are the blessed of God. We are the healed of God. We are provided for by God. We are protected by God. We are loved by God. The King, the Creator, our Father. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us. And we do thank you for this nation. We thank you for the, the, the rich legacy that we have become inheritors of. And we do pray for its preservation. 
But Lord, keep our eyes on you and kingdom business. Help us to remember that we're not called. You didn't save us just to enjoy this life. You saved us to use us, to minister through us, and to work your will in this world. Help us to be good representatives of our true home. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in here who does not know you, as, as, as Lord and Savior, as Father, that they would come to know you before this day is over. Tug on their heart. Reveal yourself to them and reveal their need for you. Meanwhile, Lord, I speak blessings over this congregation. I speak protection, life, health, and prosperity over this church. Preserve us, protect us, prosper us, and heal us, Lord, till we gather again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.